important in the book of Hebrews? Anybody remember what those words are? Probably not. Better, 13 times. Perfect, it's 14 times. <laughs> and eternal. There we go. <laughs> These are three main keywords. I appreciate the man. He is he is locked in. He is in tune. I need that well slide back up here. Do I need? Um, the reason these keywords are so important is because what Jesus gives us is better. Say better. Because it gives us perfect standing before him. Someone say perfect. And because it is eternal. Somebody say eternal. And so we've established that the theme of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ and his salvation to the law of Moses. Uh, the Jews, because of persecution, are wanting to run back towards the law. And so the writer of Hebrews writes this book to... Um, kind of squash this movement to let them know that uh, Christ is superior in every way. And so, uh, in chapter 1, Paul gives several quotations back-to-back from Old Testament in order to prove that Jesus is better than the angels, because in Jewish theology, angels were very important, um, but Christ is better than the angels. In chapter 2, Paul shows us that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. He took on human nature that he never possessed. Why? so that we can take on divine nature that we never possessed. In chapter 3, to show these Jewish Christians that going back to the law would be futile, Paul proves that Jesus is better than Moses. Somebody says better than Moses. And if that wasn't good enough, in chapter 4, uh, he warns us against hardening our hearts. That if we do, we will miss the rest that God has for us, just like Israel did in the Old Testament. Because it is possible to be out of Egypt and not in Canaan. And that's the problem of these Hebrew believers. They are looking back instead of marching forward. Hebrews 4, 1 through 2 in the ESV says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who Listen, when Israel received or refused to receive God's word with faith, they lost the inheritance that God had already provided for them. They didn't lose something. It was not like, hey, if you finish this crossing line, uh, we're going to go to the bank and get you a million dollars. It was the promise was already there. The inheritance already belonged to them. All they had to do was walk and claim it, but they lost it because of their disobedience and their refusal to receive God at his Word, because faith, we talked about it this morning, is the environment in which the Word of God operates. And then in chapter 5, the writer proves that Jesus has an eternal and surprisingly a sympathetic priesthood that is better, 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 is better than the priesthood of Aaron. And then here, as we get into chapter 6, uh, the writer is going to exhort these believers to grow up and move forward. Because if they don't, they will go backwards spiritually. Now, here's the thing. This is what he's really going to stress here. It is a tragedy to grow old and never grow up. It's a tragedy to grow old and never grow up. It is natural that babies desire milk. And we expect them to be deficient in their maturity. You don't expect a baby to go get a full-time job. Right, babies are full-time jobs. 
But if the baby stays in the same immature state that it's in for years to come, something's wrong, right? And there is a time in every believer's life when we must graduate from milk to meat, the Bible tells us. And it is at this stage that we become more than just believers, but we actually take on the responsibility of becoming a disciple. Now, anything that refuses to grow eventually will die. In fact, I read one thing that said the clinical definition of death is a body that no longer changes. If you're not moving forward in your Christian life, there's only one way you're going, and that's backwards. There is no standing still. I can't remember who said it, but when I first got in church, somebody said it. It was probably one of these two. Um, living for God is like going up a, a ramp or something with roller skates. As long as you're moving, you can go forward. But if you stop, you're going to roll down real quick. I always remembered that. There's no middle ground with God. You're either moving forward in him or you're moving backwards away from him. Now, this section of the book of Hebrews begins in verse 11 of chapter 5. And carries through Hebrews chapter 6. And the last time we were together, we were talking about Jesus and his superiority to the priesthood of Aaron. And we left off in verse uh, number 10 of Hebrews chapter 5. Now this particular section um, has been misunderstood and misapplied by uh, various uh, religious people. And so uh, to kind of summarize what this section is we're going to be talking about, I'm going to jump to Hebrews 6 and 12 and read from the NIV version. It says, we do not want you to become lazy. Somebody say lazy. But imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. This is kind of the theme scripture of this particular section that we're on right now. Um, now Israel wanted to go back to Egypt. And as a result, an entire generation failed to inherit what God had promised them. They were safely delivered out of Egypt, but they never enjoyed the promised rest of Canaan, and if we're not careful, we can make that same mistake today. Now, if you keep in mind that the emphasis in this section is on making spiritual progress, then you'll steer away from the misunderstandings and misapplications that have been created and have created problems in Christianity um, relating to this subject. Now, uh, in this section, the writer deals with three specific topics that relate to spiritual progress. And the first one is, the marks of spiritual immaturity. Somebody say spiritual immaturity. Uh, verse 11. We're going to pick up Hebrews 5:11 in the ESV. It says, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. Why? Because you have become dull of hearing. Did you hear me? Just checking. Thank you, Brother Tom. I appreciate that. The writer is about to begin his explanation of this heavenly priesthood of Christ, but he was not sure he could properly explain this because the people that he is writing to were not ready to be taught what he wanted to teach them. Now, the problem was not with the teacher. The problem was is that they were dull in their hearing. The word translated dull in verse 11 is translated as slothful or lazy in Hebrews 6 and 12, the verse we read just a second ago. It refers to a condition of spiritual apathy and laziness that prevents spiritual development. So what then are the marks of spiritual maturity? The first one is dullness towards the word. 
These believers started their backwards journey by drifting away from the word. Remember at the very beginning of this series, we talked about several steps. Drifting away from the word, that leads to doubting the word. And as a result, they are now dull of hearing. That is unable to listen to the word. It's amazing that somebody can be in an atmosphere where God's word is being spoken. And some people can receive nourishment from the word, while other people don't hear a thing. And they just go home unaffected, just dull of hearing. Now, the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, they had a different attitude. They said, for this cause we thank God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, uh, this is Paul talking to Thessalonians, when you receive the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it was in truth, the word of God, which effectu effectually worketh also in you that believe. I've been reading ESV so long, it's hard to read King James. Now, one of the first symptoms of this spiritual regression or backsliding is dullness towards the Bible. Yeah. Sunday school class is dull. Preaching is dull. Worship is dull. Everything spiritual is dull. And the problem is not with the Sunday school or the teacher or the pastor. The problem is with the believer who has now become dull to the word of God. That's the first symptom. Verse 12, he said, for though by this time you should be teaching... But you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. So the second mark of an immature believer is the inability to share. So, so raise your hand if you have children who don't know how to share. There, there seems to be daily a fight somewhere about somebody who has something that somebody else wants. Am I right, Jax? He's always the, the victim of the, of the fight that's happening. But somebody, there's just this, you don't have to teach children to be selfish. You have to teach them how to share. Like, hey, you know, it's nice if you share. The inability to share spiritual truth with others is a mark of maturity. When you're willing to share with other people things that you're learning and share the word of God, that's a sign of maturity. But not all Christians have the gift of teaching, but every Christian has the responsibility to share the good news of the gospel. Now, the recipients of this letter had been saved long enough that the writer says, you should be teaching other people the word of God. But instead, you need somebody to come teach you all the basic stuff all over again. Could you imagine a high school senior? Getting ready, should be going to college, but instead has to go back to kindergarten and learn everything all over again. That's basically what he's saying to these people here. Instead of helping others grow, these Hebrews were in need of learning again the simple teachings of Christian life. They're basically experiencing a second spiritual childhood. Verse 13, he said, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. So this gives us the third mark of an immature believer, and that's a baby food diet. Now, milk is a pre-digested food, and it's suited for babies. But only those who have teeth can enjoy meat. All the guys said meat. Good. Now, the writer defines the milk as the, fir as the first principles of the oracles of God. The meat of the word is the teaching about our Lord's ministry in heaven as our high priest. So the writer wants to give them this meat, but they don't have any teeth to eat the meat with. 
That would be awful. If I ever have a nightmare, it's going to be me sitting down at a buffet of meat and not having any teeth. I would be gumming that meat to death. The milk of the word refers to what Jesus did on earth, his birth, his life, his teaching, death, burial, and resurrection, while the meat refers to what he's doing in heaven. So he's saying, I want to tell you about things that are beyond just what Jesus did. I want to tell you more than just history. I want to let you in on the insides of, of his ministry that's in heaven, but you're not spiritually ready to hear that. You've got to go have another course through the gospel all over again. This leads us to number four, unskillful in using the word. As we grow in the word, we learn to use it in our daily lives. This is why I stress all the time a relationship with the word, attending church, being faithful to Sunday nights and Wednesday nights is imperative to you growing and maturing in your walk with God. Because as we grow in the word, we become stronger. As we apply the word, we exercise our spiritual senses and develop something called spiritual discernment which is very necessary. Now, it's a characteristic that children lack. Babies put anything in their mouth. Now, I'm going to embarrass Maylie, but when she was a baby, once she put a giant moth in her mouth, and once she put one of those giant water bugs in her mouth. And both times, Mom didn't know what it was, so Mom went to pull it out and... If you've ever heard her scream, then you know what happened. Babies will just put anything in their mouth. How many times have you had a baby and you're like, always having to watch them because as soon as they see something, they grab it and go straight to the mouth. That's what babies do. But you see, an immature believer, a baby Christian, does the same thing. They'll listen to any preacher. They'll take advice from any believer. And they can't tell whether the person they're talking to is speaking the truth or not. Just as our physical bodies have senses with which we could not function without, so our inner spiritual man has spiritual senses. That's why the psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are your eyes, Jesus said, for they see and your ears for they hear. And as we feed on the word of God and apply it into our daily lives, our spiritual senses get the exercise they need and they become stronger. And Paul called this process exercising ourselves unto godliness. First Timothy chapter four. I made this comment. When was it? A week, two ago. Um, about how you don't just go jump into some kind of race without the proper training. I don't go to the gym with my wife because I am not equipped to handle that. There will be a lot of screaming and moaning and rolling around the floor. And that's just during the stretching. We haven't even got to the workout yet. You have to exercise to be able to strengthen yourself, to be able to endure the kind of things that you have to endure. Well, the same thing applies to the spirit. You have to exercise your spiritual senses. You have to train yourself. How do you do that? you got to be in relationship with him. You don't learn to hear his voice unless you spend time with him in prayer. You don't learn the truth unless you immerse yourself in the word of God. And the more you immerse yourself in the word of God, the more you understand truth. It's been said a lot, but uh, when they're teaching people who handle money how to spot counterfeit money, they don't give them counterfeit money. They let them feel the real money so much that when the counterfeit comes through, they can easily identify the counterfeit. 
You should be so invested in the word of God that you don't have to study what other religions think or what other people think or, or know every argument of every other non-believer. Uh, you just need to know the word because when the counterfeit comes through, you're going to recognize and your spiritual senses will, will alert you that this is not true. So we need to exercise. Now, a preacher once said, most Christians are betweeners. Somebody say betweeners. His friend looked at him and said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, they are between Egypt and Canaan. They are out of danger, but not yet into the place of rest and rich inheritance. They are between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, saved by the blood, but not enjoying the newness of a resurrected life. And then he asked them, are you a betweener? After the writer identifies the marks of spiritual immaturity, he moves on to the second topic, which is the call to spiritual maturity. Now, nobody can escape coming into the world as a baby. Like, nobody's given birth to a full-grown human as far as I know. If you have, keep that story to yourself. The only way to get here is as a baby. And no matter how much the parents and grandparents love to hold and cuddle and coddle the baby, and as much as you don't want Peyton to grow up because he's so adorable where he is right now, at the end of the day, if he didn't grow up, you'd be concerned. That is why chapter 6 begins with this, therefore. Say it with me. What's the therefore, therefore? Anytime you see therefore in one of the epistles, ask yourself, what is this therefore, therefore? Because it is connecting two things. Because of what we learned through the first five chapters, now we must do this because of everything Jesus has done for us. So, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Somebody say grow up. This is what he says. He opens chapter 6 and he says, listen. Leave the little stuff behind and grow up. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instructing about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. If we're going to make progress, spiritual progress, if we're going to grow in our relationship with God, we have to leave childish things behind and move forward in spiritual growth. Now, Hebrews 6 and 1 literally reads this way. Therefore... Having left once and for all the elementary lessons, the ABCs of Christ. When you were in kindergarten and you learned the ABCs, it wasn't just so you could walk around and sound cute singing the ABC song. I mean, maybe you did. I mean, it's so cute. Asher sings the ABCs. And he misses a few letters here and there. And, you know, it's, say it again. But the reason your teachers teach you the ABCs is because you use your ABCs to learn how to read words and eventually read sentences and eventually read books. The ABCs are the foundation that you're supposed to grow and mature. If you're a senior in high school and you're still singing your ABCs and you can't read Dr. Seuss, something is wrong with your development. We're being honest, right? So the phrase, let us go on, can actually be translated, let us be carried forward. Because it is God who enables us to progress as we yield to him, receive his word, and act on his word. Just as a baby does not grow itself, no baby makes itself grow. 
He grows as he eats and sleeps and exercises and permits his body to function. Nature, as ordained by God, carries the baby day after day, and gradually he matures into an adult. And it is normal for Christians to grow, and it is abnormal for them to have arrested growth. You're not supposed to stop growing. Verse 4, for it is impossible, and this is the one that people get scared about. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying again, or once again, the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. Now this passage has been misunderstood by a lot of Christians, and it's uh, been labeled incorrectly, I might add, as the unpardonable sin. Has anybody ever heard of that? Unpardonable sin? Um, so the question is, is this the unpardonable sin? And the answer is yes and no. I'm glad I can clear that up for you. Now in verse 6 in the King James, he says, um, If they fall away to renew them again under repentance, it's impossible, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now, in the Greek language, they have these, uh, these two words are what they call perfect uh, present participles. Okay, you got that? Good. We can go home. Basically, it means this. It can be correctly interpreted that while they are crucifying and while they put him to an open shame. It refers to an ongoing action. In other words, no one who falls away or backslides can be renewed again while they are continuing the same actions that took them away from God in the first place. In order to be renewed again, in order to receive forgiveness, you have to turn around in repentance and come back to God. That's what that's talking about. So the unpardonable sin is not something you did in your past. It's an attitude towards God you have in the present. Think about the context of this chapter, in this book rather. The unpardonable sin is to stop growing in God because to stop growing in God is to start backsliding away from God. So basically you're saying, there's no forgiveness while you're backslidden. You've got to make a decision to come back to God in order to be restored. Verse 6, I mean verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. The illustration of a field reminds us of the Lord's parable of the sower as well as Paul's teaching about the fire testing our works. A field proves its worth by bearing fruit, right? If you had a field and you harvested and nothing came of it, that field would be waste, wasted, useless. In the same way, a true believer, as he makes spiritual progress, is supposed to bear fruit for God. So the issue is our fruitfulness as a Christian. You know, your faithfulness has to progress to fruitfulness. The fruit of your life will either be a blessing to you or it's going to be a curse to you. So what is the fruit? Fruit indicates the long-term results of your actions and attitudes. Fruit doesn't grow overnight. You can't just say, well, yeah, I'm going to, I, I got to, let's see, I got to preach tomorrow, so whew, I'm going to go, I'm going I'm to get down and pray and I'm going to have some fruit tomorrow. Fruit doesn't grow overnight. Fruit is the long-term results of your actions and your attitudes. Fruit grows as you grow. 
Fruit indicates maturity or development in your spiritual life. Fruit indicates a part of your life that can nourish somebody else. And fruit indicates the visible result of a seed that is invisible and that has been buried in you. Verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Here's what he's saying. Just because it's not a salvational issue does not mean it is not an issue. There are some things, the King James says, that accompany salvation. We, we've minimized salvation to be uh, a, an experience that happens at one moment. But salvation, there are things that accompany salvation. And it may not be heaven or hell issue, and it may not be a salvational issue, but it's either progressing you forward or pushing you backwards. So they're still critical to our journey. Verse 10, for God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So God doesn't forget our efforts as we build the kingdom. And guess what? God's payday isn't Friday. So he's, he's urging the readers, don't be lazy. Follow good examples. Not those who are impressive, but those who have continued to show faith and patience. Why is that so important? Because believing in God and waiting on God are always worth it. Ask Joshua and Caleb. We must believe God's promise enough to endure and patiently wait how many times could Joshua and Caleb have gotten angry and bitter in the 40 years they had to wander because of everybody else's disobedience? But with faith and patience, they waited for the promise and they claimed the land that God had promised them. The third uh, topic is the reward of spiritual maturity. Someone say reward. Verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, this, this, this is one of my favorite scriptures in all the Bible. Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So there again we see, patiently waited by faith, he obtained the promise. Now Abraham's promise was so big, it literally was staggering. But he had so much faith in God that he didn't wait, waver, even when the process was seeming to move in reverse. And listen, one of the most important things we have to learn as believers is that there is a difference between process and promise. And if we don't trust God through the process, we are not worthy of the promise. Romans 4 and 20 in the King James says, He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. That phrase, patiently waited, is the exact opposite of sluggish. The readers of this letter are about to give up. Their endurance is running out. And basically said, you will obtain and enjoy what God has promised if you diligently apply yourself to what? To the development of your spiritual life. You can't be shallow. Now today... You and I have more promises than Abraham ever dreamed of. So what is keeping us from making our spiritual progress in our relationship with God? It's simple. We don't apply ourselves by faith. 
To return to the illustration of the farm, the farmer does not reap a harvest by sitting on the porch and staring at the seed. He has to get busy and he has to plow the field and plant the seed and weed the garden and cultivate and even water the soil. And the believer who neglects church fellowship, ignores his Bible, doesn't pray, is not going to reap much of a harvest. Now here's the thing though. God not only gave Abraham a promise, but he confirmed that promise with an oath. Now when a witness takes an oath in the court, what does he say? So help me God. But we call on the greater to witness for the lesser. None is greater than God. And the Bible says God, because there was nobody greater, swore by himself. And the Bible tells us that his promise and his oath are both unchangeable. Verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and all their disputes and oath is for final confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, somebody say, that's me, the unchangeable character of his purpose he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. So here's what God did. God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I swear I'm going to bless you. But here's the question. Why in the world would God swear? God swore. Because he made a covenant with Abraham that he was telling the truth. Because Abraham, sometimes it will look like I'm a liar. Sometimes it will look like serving me doesn't work. Sometimes things get worse before they get better. Sometimes it looks like you're going backwards instead of forwards. Sometimes it looks like I'm trying to kill you instead of bless you. But Abraham, you can always rest assured that I swear I will bless you and you cannot get the promise unless you go through the process in other words david i swear i'm going to bless you you will run for your life you will spend 20 years running from saul you'll make mistakes you'll be betrayed you'll feel alone at times but david i swear i will bless you joseph your brothers are going to betray you they'll sell you into egyptian slavery you'll be lied on cheated forgotten about but i swear i will bless you paul you're going to be persecuted you're going to endure peril after peril after peril you'll be in prison for over three years and eventually you'll be martyred but i swear i'm going to bless you and god not only did this for abraham but he also gives his promise and his oath to the heirs of promise which is you and i and because god could swear by no greater god swore by himself and that's an encouragement he said a strong encouragement because there will be times where we will feel like god has lied to us and there will be times when we will feel like god has abandoned us and there will be times when we will wonder if we even heard from god at all but in the back of our mind we can have the strong encouragement to patiently wait on our promise because because god swore by himself that's incredible now that phrase fled for refuge is talking about the old testament cities of refuge in numbers 35 and in joshua 20 god appointed six cities three on each side of jordan where if somebody accidentally kills someone you can flee to one of these cities of refuge and if the elders of the city would do their investigation if they determined that it was manslaughter and not murder you were free to live in that city until the death of the high priest and then you could go home. 
And the members of the slain man's family could not avenge themselves so long as the man remained in the city of refuge and the high priest was alive. But here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Because of our sins, we had to flee to a place of refuge. But that place of refuge was Jesus Christ because he is our eternal refuge. And he is also our high priest. And guess what? He will never die. So nobody can touch us because he has already died and risen from the dead. Therefore, we have an eternal place of refuge. So when the enemy comes up to you and starts trying to remind you of everything you've done, you say you have no business. You can't avenge me for what I did back then because I am living in an eternal place of refuge. Now, you can choose to leave. And if you choose to leave, all bets are off. If the man in the Old Testament left his city of refuge and was murdered, no crime committed. He should have stayed where he was. But as long as we stay connected to him, listen to what he says in verse 19. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, this is incredible, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So our anchor is solid, but our anchor is different than anchors in a boat because our anchor is anchored upwards and it moves us ahead. Remember I said this morning, our anchor doesn't pull us back, it moves us forward. Our anchor is sure, it can't break, it's steadfast, it can't slip. No earthly anchor can give you the kind of security that this anchor can. But listen, the clincher of the entire argument, he said, Jesus was our forerunner. He has gone ahead to heaven so that one day we can follow. The Old Testament priest was not a forerunner. Nobody could follow him into the Holy of Holies. But Jesus has gone to heaven, and because he is our forerunner, we are able to follow him. And the whole point of this particular section is this. We can have security. Somebody say security. While we are working towards maturity. Because it doesn't matter where you are as much as it matters where you're headed. I don't care if you've been in church 50 years or five minutes. If you're heading in the right direction, you have the security of that place of refuge, that eternal place of refuge, that anchor of the soul that carries you into maturity. Think about this. People, we, 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 we marvel at some people's spiritual lives. We say, how in the world can I ever grow and do that? Listen, they didn't get there by themselves. And what the writer of Hebrews here in chapter 6 is letting us understand is this. If we develop our spiritual relationship with God, if we grow into maturity, if we spend time in prayer and time in his word, and if we're faithful to our fellowship, and if we come and hear and grow and worship, the Spirit of God carries us like nature naturally carries a baby into maturity when it eats and sleeps and gives us proper rest. When we do what we should do in the Spirit, the Spirit carries us into maturity and you grow in knowledge of the Word. So we can have security while working on maturity. 
So regardless of where you stand today, let us go on to maturity. Every one of us can grow and move forward the right way. But we have this hope, this blessed hope. Remember, he can guard me. Talked about that this morning. He is an anchor, and he is a forerunner. As long as I stay connected to him, I can go everywhere he's been. I have access to heaven through him. Security, maturity. Can we stand?